I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Music of Roger Joseph Manning Jr., who is my guest today on the program. Let me tell you a little bit about Roger Joseph Manning Jr. Searching for music is like searching for God, David Bowie once said. They're very similar. There's an effort to reclaim the unmentionable, the unsayable, the unseeable, the unspeakable. All those things comes into being a composer and to writing music and to searching for notes and pieces of musical information that don't exist. Well, when it comes to Roger Joseph Manning Jr., his whole life has been about that search and making the invisible rhythms of the world into tangible music. In fact, the USC-educated Manning has been in the making the invisible visible business for the last 30 years. His first post-college foray was with the Bay Area outfit Beatnik Beach, a band that his high school pal Andy Sturmer played drums in. Beatnik Beach was a San Francisco staple for about two years. They put out At the Zulu Pool in 1986, and then a self-titled effort on Atlantic in 1988, which is around the time that Manning joined the fold. Now, speaking of folding, that's exactly what Beatnik Beach did. Atlantic Records really had no idea how to market the band, and they called it a day in 1989. Beatnik Beach called it a day. (laughs) I should make that clear. Uh, Atlantic Records were fine. Now, Sturmer and Manning were old pals, and not a lot of time was needed to lick their wounds. Sturmer had convinced Manning to relocate to the Bay Area in the first place, and that's where they stayed. Comfortably based in their adopted home of San Francisco, The duo recruited Jason Faulkner and Chris Manning, and just like that, Jellyfish was born. Their first album, Belly Button, came out in 1990. Spilt Milk hit shelves in 1993, and by 1994, Jellyfish had broken up. A short tenure, for sure, but in just two albums and six years together, Jellyfish managed to be one of the most enduring, mysterious, frustrating, and irresistible bands of all time. 
Falling somewhere between XTC, The Beatles, Split Ends, and Utopia, Jellyfish's brand of radio-ready psychedelic pop arrived fully formed. What I mean by that is, they're one of those rare bands like, I don't know, The Clash or The Ramones or Crowded House, who didn't need to foul off a few pitches before getting it right. They got it right from the start, which may be why the end seemed so premature and hit so hard. But you know what they say, you should never cry over spilt milk. A terrible joke, I know, but I couldn't resist. You wouldn't be able to either. Look, the fact is this. All these years later, Jellyfish's fans remain as devoted as ever, and there's a post-Jellyfish preservation society that keeps the band's memory very much alive. After Jellyfish, Sturmer went on to work with Puffy Amiyumi. He also sang backup vocals for everyone from Mandy Moore to the Foo Fighters to the Black Crows. In other words, Sturmer became a kind of behind-the-scenes guy, and he makes his living now by scoring soundtracks for shows like Transformers, Tom and Jerry, and Ben 10. As for Roger Manning, well, since 1994, he's been pretty busy. Let me catch you up. After Jellyfish, Manning grabbed Eric Dover, who had been a touring member of the band, and they founded Imperial Drag, who put out one record in their short time together. It's an interesting album of glam pop and artful grooves, but it never really caught fire with critics or fans, and the band didn't hang around very long. Around this time, Manning also formed the Moog Cookbook with Brian Kehue. Anyone who thought Manning's new band this time around would echo his pop past with Jellyfish were probably thrown off by this sudden sonic right turn. And if you listen to the Moog Cookbook, you'll see that reaction is in many ways perfectly understandable. Comprised of analog synthesizers, the Moog Cookbook was largely an instrumental covers project, taking its inspiration from the late 60s when the Moog synthesizer was new and started showing up in pop music. Both an ironic wink and a tip-of-the-hat homage, the Moog Cookbook was not for everyone, but even for those it wasn't for, a casual listen demonstrated Manning's inherent sense of song structure and deep understanding of composition. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking, wow, Manning formed a lot of bands after Jellyfish. Well, he wasn't done. Teaming up with former Jellyfish guitar player Jason Faulkner, Manning also formed TV Eyes, a group who played synth pop and spiky new wave. They only put out one album and an EP, and both, originally, were only available in Japan. Taking a page from TVI's Japan-only playbook, in 2006, Manning put out his first solo album called Solid State Warrior. It was only available in Japan. Years later, the U.S. release of that record went under the name The Land of Pure Imagination. Two years later, in 2008, Manning put out a second solo album. This one was called Catnip Dynamite, and it was only available in, you guessed it, Belgium. I'm kidding. It was Japan again. In between all these bands and solo activity, Manning played with Morrissey, Blink-182, Beck, Malibu, and Interpol. He's a busy guy. And like his former bandmate Andy Sturmer, he's very behind-the-scenes-ish. He's around. You just have no idea that it's him. But trust me, he's there. 
even when you don't know it. Now, all of this brings us to Glamping, which is Roger Joseph Manning Jr.'s new four-song EP, comprised of Operator, Funhouse, Is It All a Dream, and I'm Not Your Cowboy. Glamping is a straight-up pop masterclass of infectious, catchy, and irresistible music. Look, Roger Joseph Manning Jr. is one of the great pop composers of our time. He's a true sonic architect, and he's one hell of a nice guy. How nice is he? When our interview was done, he said to me, Hey, if you didn't get enough, call me back and we'll do some more. You don't hear that very often. So, without further introduction, here is my chat with Roger Joseph Manning Jr. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. biggest allure for me of rock and pop music over the last 40 years or whatever since its inception has not been lyrics for me. I, I enjoy and appreciate good lyrics, but it's not what the ultimate allure is for me or necessarily why I like or dislike a song. Um, I mean, I've had plenty of favorite songs where I can't even really tell you what the lyric was about because I didn't pay attention. The, the lyrics just always been more or less a vehicle for the melody. Um, for me. And, uh, I mean, again, you know, when a, a lyric does affect me, it's, it's a very powerful thing. And when I mean, you can't, you know, Elvis Costello is like one of my heroes of all time. You can't have Elvis Costello without his brilliant poetry attached to those brilliant songs. But, um, when I roll out of bed in the morning, I'm interested in creating melody against chords and, and grooves. And the lyric just becomes part of that because I don't, I don't want to do instrumental music. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have an interest interest in that. Uh, I like the I like the pop rock tradition. Uh, you know, in, in a three and a half minute song, unless I'm going to explore like a more progressive rock song, in which case it usually gets a little longer than that. But uh, so that that's the deal there. So I was always very fortunate to uh, seek out and collaborate with very talented lyricists. You know, specifically. Andy Sturmer and Eric Dover and Jason Faulkner in the past, in the recent past, um, but realized that if I was going to make a solo record, I really want to try to do it on my own and uh, really actually enjoyed that journey. Uh, it still takes way too much time, and I'm not interested in spending that amount of time. I mean, there were songs on the first solo record that took me I saw an idea together that I was very confident and proud of in about 30 minutes. Obviously, I had to record and arrange. Some ideas come very fast. Writing a lyric for that song, I'm not kidding you, might have taken three weeks. Wow. And that's just the way it goes, because I'm certainly not as practiced as my former partners or collaborators. And I know I know how good it should be. I know what I at least want to go for. Um, so I just struggle and sculpt and a huge exercise in patience and I've got stacks of thesauruses and dictionaries all around me uh, until I get there. Um, and it's just kind of one of the necessary aspects of what I chose to do. That, that's why on this record, it was really hard for me to get going because I was so daunted by 12 songs with unfinished lyrics. And I was complaining one day to my friend Chris Price and he said, well, I'll lend a hand. And I was like, well, I never even thought of that. I said, what the hell? And uh, three of those uh lyric ideas he had uh, ended up becoming three of the songs for glamping uh, 
now when I when I do when I record a little demo and capture an idea so I don't forget it, I sing gibberish for my melody. Just make up words and silly phrases that don't have any rhyme or reason. Uh, but what he noticed was that some of my gibberish actually could be massaged into a hook or a rep- repetitive phrase for a chorus or something. So he was really good at that. Uh, and then when he would give me his first draft, I kind of said, oh, I see what this could be now. Thank you for taking it this far. I'm going to go, you know, massage it some more. And in some cases, I massaged it a lot. Others, like, uh, is it all a dream? I don't I don't think I even touched it all. I think that's his original lyric from top to bottom, whereas uh, I'm Not Your Cowboy, that was more of a collaboration. So when you're doing the massage process after he kind of got you started or helped you out, was it still difficult after that, or that made it so much easier? It made it so much easier. I, I yeah, I spent... I wrapped it up, I think, in an afternoon because I could just I could see the finish line. I think it's really interesting that you that you never reached out for help. <laughs> that he had to sort of say to you, like, "Hey, let me help you, man." Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I well, you know, that comes from a lot of experience um, <clears throat> in in uh, working with people over the years. So even even when Andy and I had Jellyfish, we had two different versions of the band and. We auditioned a lot of guitarists and bass players, uh, certainly uh, doing a lot of freelance session work over the years. I've worked with all kinds of musicians from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of skill levels. Um, and if, if one, uh, you know, one of the joys for me um, is uh, arranging the music. So, it's it's really fun to come up with the initial idea on guitar or piano, but I love the process of then taking that in its raw state and turning it into the production that one hears on a finished song. Um, that That's a whole journey, and every song is different. And bringing in outside talent to a company, often, no matter how talented the people are, if it's still not the way you hear it in your head, uh, you can get very frustrated and... It can be additionally time consuming. It can kind of derail the project temporarily. And I just, you know, my, my biggest regret in life, and of course it's not too late, even though I'm in my early fifties, uh, is that I didn't master enough instruments as well as I can play the keyboard. Um, you know, I play drums pretty well. I, yeah, I don't really have guitar or bass chops, but I hear it all in my head. Um, and it would just be a matter of, I, I never put in those hours to get the technique down on guitar and bass, for example, that I, that I have on piano, like I said, where I did put in, you know, years, <laughs> years and years of hours. Um, and I still practice, and so you're, you're still getting better and better. But, um, uh, so, so the whole lyric thing, again, is kind of like, if you want something right, you gotta do it yourself kind of thing. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, the jellyfish record and everything I've been involved with, with my collaborators and bands, I mean, they kind of speak for themselves. I mean, love us or hate us, we, we've delivered a very high standard and quality of uh, artistic offerings to the world. And um, that that remains, for the most part, in what I do. I, 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 you know, I'm my own worst critic. I'm my own worst enemy and, and challenger and disciplinarian when it comes to all this stuff, because I want, I want stuff to sound as good as any of my heroes. You know, I was like, so, you know, sorry, but Steely Dan fucking, they kicked all of our asses many, many, (laughs) as in, you know, as in many, many other artists. But, um, 
uh, and then not that I don't like lo-fi in the do-it-yourself with your uh, four-track cassette deck in your mom's garage either. I mean, there's been some brilliant stuff that's been done like that. Um, it's all it's all what serves the song and what what conceptually does the artist want to say. But I, in general, when I've had the opportunity to offer up solo stuff, my tendency is to have stuff that's pretty thoroughly flushed out and produced and um, really, really sculpted sonically. That's just my preference. Well, you know, I think that you, in terms of putting all those hours in on the keyboard, uh, you know, I can totally understand that because it's like, why would you, you know, pick up another instrument if you're thinking, maybe you think in terms of keyboard-based instrumentation, your your subconscious brain is attracted so much to that, why would you pick up a bass guitar, right? But you're saying, well, maybe you should have, but... I don't know, man. I think you're being too hard on yourself. I because you, that's how you think, right? <laughs> your your songs originate from that place, and you think from that place. Yeah, thank thank you for saying so. I mean, I have written some of my favorite songs on guitar because I don't know what instruments you play or, or whatever. But uh, the physicality of striking a keyboard is very different than striking and strumming a guitar, and different. It creates different moods and energy. Um, so. You know, I learned all my bar chords enough to where I can absolutely write songs on guitar. I just can't then take a ripping solo you know, <laughs> over that same song. But uh, yeah, in the 80s, when I was a young, formative uh, musician, um, I had the goal to be as competent uh, and as versatile as possible on the keyboard. And in the early 80s, when this was all happening, drum machines were just being invented um, or really coming into their own and as were samplers. So I was very much a tech head and enjoyed programming all the electronic gear that was coming out. And uh, there were sequencers, primitive sequencers, and it was kind of like, wow, well, you can kind of just do it all yourself. I mean, there's a lot of, there was a lot of uh, do-it-yourself keyboard guy music. Thomas Dolby, Howard Jones, uh, a lot of producers were programming drums and programming the keyboard. It's a very keyboard-oriented time, uh, not unlike uh, EDM world where a guy just sits at the computer and it's him in the soft sense. You know, 99% of those people who are having massive success cannot play any instrument. They, that's, that's never even been their goal. That's not a judgment. That's just the nature of that genre of music. Um, but I always remember back then, I was like, well, if I need guitar like Peter Gabriel or Cheers for Fears has, I'll just get somebody because that's what you do. You just get somebody who's already as trained and as proficient on their instrument as you are you are on yours. Right. Like you said, it never dawned on me to take the time to like, well, I've got to get my bass chops up as good as, as good as my keyboard chops. It makes sense. I mean, it's funny because um, like I love Elvis Costello too. And, and, you know, I, I grew up, we're, we're around the same age. And, and for me, it's like, I used to listen to like get happy or whatever. And I, and I was just like, this guy is the greatest. I'm a lyrics guy. And it's funny how we, you and I both love Costello, even though, Right, like I, I hear lyrics first, yeah. and and so there must be yeah. something he's doing that brings us both in in the same. Exactly, it's interesting. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So, I mean, I don't know what that is, but he, but he's got it. But at any rate, I. So when you first hear a song, I was going to say on the radio, but I don't, I don't even know if we listen to the radio anymore, Roger. But when you hear a song for the first time, do you hear the lyrics or do you hear the instrumentation, the arrangement? I hear what I what I hear is the vibe, meaning that for me that's mostly coming from the uh, everything having to do with the music, um, and so um, 
groove and chords and then the melody sitting on top of those chords, um, you know, which is being executed by the guy's or woman's voice, which is very much like from listening to a jazz song, is the saxophone playing the melody or is the trumpet playing the melody? And I can tell you right away, I prefer the tonality of a saxophone. So typically I prefer the tonality of a man's voice over a woman's voice. I see. Um, and that's just, that's just like how it works for me. And then I start getting massage. It's very, very visceral. I'm not even really analyzing it yet. So if the song is passed and I was like, what the hell was that? Who is that <laughs> artist? Or if I knew the artist, I'm like, oh my God, that felt so good. I find out how, who did it. I, like anybody, I want to hear it again. And then when I hear it again, then I'm really listening in more detail. Wow, look at look at how this, why, why does this make me want to dance? Well, this groove is put together so well. Um, you know, is it all is it all machine and computerized or do I hear band performances and or an organic human element to it? Uh, again, not that I prefer one or the other. I like them both. It, um, anyway, it's, it re- really reaches out to me that way. And then somewhere down the road, I might get to the lyric and go, oh, that's kind of clever or. Ooh, that's terrible. Why are they singing about that? That's just, that's just goofy, you know? <laughs> or, wow, that's, that's an incredible sentiment. That's, uh, and, and whoever wrote this lyric is either one, just wanting to be playful and light. It's very lighthearted. Or, my God, listen to the, this guy read some books because listen to the massive levels of poetry happening, you know, at, at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I would think that with you, you know, with these songs, Chris writes the, some of the lyrics, and I wonder if sometimes was there ever a moment where you went, oh, wow, that is not where I saw the song taking place. Like maybe the song feels like more of a night groove and the lyrics feel more daytime-like, something simple like that. Was there ever that kind of an issue? Yeah, there was one. I, see, I'm sitting on another eight unfinished songs, uh, some of which uh, Chris did lend a hand to. Uh, and my hope is, if this pledge campaign goes as well as I hope, uh, it will give me a foundation and uh, reason to, you know, every wonderful excuse in the world to put out uh, another volume, another EP of, of finished material, you know, hopefully within nine months. So, so me and an audience aren't waiting around for five to ten years for me to finish 12 songs <laughs> in between the rest of my life. Um, so that's, that's part of the experiment. And uh, certainly, I mean, there were there were one or two songs that Chris presented ideas for that I felt missed. They weren't they weren't in they weren't synch- synchronous with the mood that the music was conveying. I see. For the most part, though, that didn't happen. He seemed to because he's a he's a consummate musician. Uh, I think he as a musician tapped into the vibe that my demo offered and his lyric his lyric naturally uh, was an extension of that. So we had very little challenge there. And like I said, some of the songs I took and really reworked and others I barely touched. How are you, uh, in terms of your own process and what you do in your comfort zone, are you more efficient now or are you, do you work at the same pace that you've always worked? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've had a personal goal to speed things up over the years and I just, I'm sorry, I just can't rush it. I just can't do that. Um, I watch other people, very talented people around me, go very fast. And uh, now, I don't always like all their ideas that they get very fast, but I'm like, my God, I've, I've got to learn to step the pace up a little bit. 
But for me, there's so much of it is, um, I mean, it's a twofold process. I very much believe in my first idea, whether I'm playing on somebody else's record in a session or my own. You know, the music strikes you, you internalize it, and then you're flooded, ideally. I suppose I'm fortunate this way. I'm flooded with, particularly if the music's inspiring me. So if I'm, if I'm doing a session with somebody else, play all kinds of music, all different styles. Well, very often, uh, or, or more, uh, less than I would like, does the song actually really inspire me? I'm like, oh my God, this is fantastic. And I'm just meeting this artist for the first time. I don't even know who they are. They may not have uh, even a first album out yet. I, I played on a session like that a few weeks ago um, with a guy named Alex Bloom. I knew nothing about him. He's a young, younger guy here in town. We were doing two songs for him. I was simply playing keyboards. Well, his chords and harmony melody just completely got under my skin. I started having all kinds of ideas of what to try. Let's try this. Let's try this. And I really believe in that initial. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take my best two ideas and show them to the, him and the producer and just dial up the sound and try to go for that. I really believe in that part of the spirit channeling. Now, whether it's my own music or his, I'm then going to sit back and I may listen to that three or four times and really take inventory and go, what's good about it? What's not working? How do we then shape it? Or is it completely off base? My initial reaction was not the best. Let's try something else. But it's a very delicate dance that someone in my shoes learns to do and that any arranger learns to do. And hopefully you get better and faster at it. Now, I, what I am bad, better at is uh, realizing quicker when I when an idea is functioning the way it should to serve the song and when it's not. So that, and, and not getting attached or precious about it. I find a lot of young musicians and songwriters, uh, this will be no mystery to you, they get very attached to their first idea because they're like, well, I had an idea and that automatically makes me better than my peers. And <laughs> so it must it must be good. It came out of me. Right. And there's, okay, there's nothing wrong with having a level of self-love and respect and trust in your abilities, but there's, you got to temper it with some humility and, and the ability to take inventory and go, well, now hang on a second. It's not about me. It's about the song. And that includes when I write my own song, I really treat them certainly at this age, as uh, gifts from the ether. Uh, whatever face, whatever persona you want to put on it, it's, to me, it's just creative spirit channeling. And I believe all of us, musicians, artists, non-artists, non-musicians, everybody channels spirit. Uh, as a musician, we're able to capture that energy and you know, either write it down and record it, or we play it if we're in a jam session, and it comes out in that spontaneous moment. And part of our invitation as creators is to learn how to recognize it and capture it and not get in its way, but to only allow oneself the opportunity to either let it be as it is or try your best to enhance it. To, in other words, you are the doorway. And you know, how, how can I be the best doorway, the best gateway, so that the public receives it in its purest, highest form you know and that this is the whole philosophy that i've adapted definitely through jazz studying jazz greats which i continue to do but um just simply learning that my best 
offerings, in my opinion, that have stood the test of time, whether they were sewing way back with jellyfish or something on glamping, uh, have been because I allowed myself to be a puppet, if you will, to, to the, to the, that spiritual energy that was coming forth. Because if you get a burst of inspiration, that's what it's called inspiration, in the spirit, where the word is derived from, you don't, you can't articulate why you're having the idea. You just know that the idea is dying to come out. You know, if you're at rehearsal with your band and like somebody's introducing you a new song, you go, oh, 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 I, I, here, let's play the chorus. I want to try this. I want to try this. Well, where did that come from? Mm. It didn't, it didn't come from you practicing piano for 20 years. It, it, you know, and it didn't come from you listening to music for 20 years. That's all part of it. You're developing a vocabulary, but that raw naked idea just, it literally just kind of appeared. And, uh, that's something I, I really, really believe in. I mean, you know, Keith Richards used to joke, all these songs are floating around in the air. You just got to know which ones to grab and which ones aren't for you. And I'm like, <laughs> yep, that's, that's pretty much how I'd put it because there's, there's no real way to articulate it, uh, only to recognize that it's there, be thankful that it's there and do your best to not, uh, to honor it and to, like I said, present it, uh, in an un, adulterated e egoless fashion um one of my greatest teachers in this realm certainly in pop music has been beck uh when i first joined him he very much recognized that me and some of the other guys in the band were much more proficient musically uh, and more trained and skilled on our instruments than perhaps uh, he was and he recognized that and we'd be arranging songs he'd show us a song idea or whatever okay roger let's try some keyboards and um, I'd, I'd come up with an idea or whatever. And he's, he was always rolling tape, or in this case, he was always recording in the computer. Everything that I played from, from the very, very beginning when I'm still figuring out the chord and I'm hitting all these wrong notes and I don't have a very good sound on the synthesizer yet, I'm still sculpting the sound. He's just recording all of it. And I can't tell you the number of times where we stopped and I said, okay, good. I think I've got the chords now. Let's try it. Let's try a couple ideas. And he goes, I've already got it. Like, <laughs> what do you mean, dude? I wasn't even, I don't even know your song yet. He goes, nope. You played this kind of improvisation stuff because your ear was trying to figure out my song. And I love it. It's exactly what I'm going to need in the verse. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. He goes, nope. I might move a few notes around, but the vibe was there. I'm like, whoa, okay. And then a couple of times I'd play stuff that was, you know, kind of fancy or very ornamented and stuff. And he was like, well, I see where you're going with that, but it's too much. It's too heady. It's too intellectual. I go, okay, I, I can get that. He goes, he goes, one of the things that's very important to me, and I'm going to encourage you. I mean, he didn't really say it this way, but the message was received. And like, it's important to know, to, you know, to exercise restraint, to like not do something just because you can. And I was like, whoa, that's so <laughs> profound. It is. That's so, that's, you know, that's just like jazz musician level. And he's, you know, anything but a jazz musician. But absolutely the same mindset and awareness and wisdom. Um, and for that and other people like him that I had the privilege of working for, I'm eternally grateful because, yeah, I was playing on his music. They weren't my songs, but I took away volumes of education from my time with him and continue to. And it's a certain kind of genius on his part to recognize, right? To go, well, this is this is Absolutely. for me, and this is not for me. Absolutely. 
and you know, and for me to not take it personally. Right, right. That's it's, what I was going to say. A real dance of the ego. Yeah, because you because sometimes and also when you're working on your own, you have to be able to uh, you know hurt your own feelings and say this thing I'm doing is going to lead me into a creative path which isn't going to yield anything. I need to let it go. Yep, that man. That is that is one of the biggest challenges. I you know I can only speak for myself, but you're definitely right. Are you better at recognizing that now than you were 20 years ago? Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and I think I have a ways to go. Um, and it's just, you know, I, I wish somebody could give me another 50 years because I love getting better and better and better at this craft. Well, I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I've interviewed authors who have, you know, 20 books out and they'll say, yeah, I wrote uh, 40,000 words and threw them all away. <laughs> right. Right. I right. mean, that's a lot of work. And that, that's, that represents yeah. a lot of time. And they, you know, even, even, you know, well-known authors will literally ditch hundreds of thousands of words because they followed the wrong thought. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Following the wrong thought. Yeah. There you go. I mean, I think that's one of the things that really always knocked me out. You know, I was 19 when I first heard Jellyfish and I think the precision and the efficiency of Andy as a lyricist um, is that guy knew early on. Uh, what his strength was, I, I always marvel at the economy and and the poetry of what he was doing. I mean, he, I don't know how he figured that out so early. Well, I, I marveled at it too, and uh, understood how um, lucky I was to have him as a collaborator. That we made such a good team. That we had uh, things we were better at than the other person, and that's why we were a good collaborative team. Um, and I think he trusted my opinion. He'd read, he'd read lyrics to me. And again, I didn't have to be a lyricist to know when, you know, you've really, you've really locked into something special there. You, you really locked into something that's a cut above the rest. And I'm happy to accompany you on that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, you know, good times. When it was all when it was all flowing. Now, what is the release plan? Are you going to do a couple of songs every few months? That that would be the plan. This was a good chunk to bite off and to finish. Like I said, the rest everybody's been in limbo. I'm like, you know what? I just got to get we need to get four out. Um, so I feel like another vote of confidence here. Uh, I've been getting a good response so far. The pledge campaign is doing well. I want it to do better. I want to invite more people to the party, so you know everybody keeps spreading the word, kind of thing. Um, particularly internationally, I just uh, did an interview with the Japanese, and I watched the numbers spike a little bit because I I do have a lot of fans over there from past projects. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to see uh, this model continue in the years ahead because it's just it's it's what you know feeds me. It's my lifeblood. And, so appreciative for anybody who wants to hear new music. It's such, so great. Well, there you go. Roger Joseph Manning Jr. What a nice guy. Get glamping. It's really worth your time. And uh, get those uh, Japan-only releases. They're now, after a long wait, I know, available digitally so here's what you do go to facebook.com slash 
Roger Joseph Manning Jr., and everything you need to know will be there. Everything you need to know about Bombshell Radio is at bombshellradio.com. If you go to iTunes, please subscribe to Bombshell Radio. And since you're there and you don't want to schlep back because of the traffic, subscribe to Stereo Embers, the podcast. Leave us a uh, rating, if you will. A kind note would be lovely. And uh, maybe a little mint under our pillow. We'd certainly appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. I will be back next week for another episode of the show, and we're going to close things off with a new track from Roger Joseph Manning Jr. This is a song called Is It All a Dream? I'm a radio host called Alex Green, and this has been a radio show called Stereo Embers, the podcast. Oh, mm-hmm.